0: Come to this Advent season with uh, humble hearts, thankful hearts, as we just uh, celebrated Thanksgiving. And, um, and so I just pray that as Dan preaches to us here this morning, uh, that your Holy Spirit moves in us, that we receive your word uh, with open hearts, open hands, um, and are challenged as we look at the realities of Christ coming uh, fully God and uh, fully man coming in the flesh. We're so thankful that he did. And, uh, and in, this, in this season of Advent, as we wait for Christmas, we also look forward to when Christ comes again. And I pray that he comes soon. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning.
1: Um, my name is Dan, and as always, it's a pleasure to be up here with you guys. Um, Welcome to the Oaks, and, you know, as we've been talking about this morning, welcome to a special Sunday. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, you can see I'm celebrating with my Christmas sweater. I'm a little <laughs> disappointed not to see more, you know, out there, but uh, flannel still seems to be ruling the day. Um, now, most of us have, you know, been to, you know, church during the season and have heard the, you know, the, the true meaning of Christmas. And, and by that, I don't mean the buying and exchanging of expensive Lego sets. Um, but not all of us are actually familiar with Advent. You know, for me, um, I kind of bounced around church for a long time after meeting him in high school, or after meeting Jesus in high school. And so I didn't really grow up knowing what Advent was, and I sort of picked it up a little later in life. Um, but the word Advent, it, it comes from us from Latin, and it, it simply means, like, the coming or the arrival of something important, of something notable. It means like something important is on the way. And so the Advent season for us is a time for us to reflect. Um, In the the midst of what's going to be like a a chaotic holiday season, because they're all chaotic holiday seasons, um, while the rest of the world kind of speeds up, we slow down. You know, you take that deep breath And we we ponder the wonder of the first advent. Um, The first advent is when the God of the universe, he took on flesh, he entered into his own creation as a fragile human infant with the intention of rescuing his creation from their sins. And so... This Advent season, you've probably heard a little bit of it already, it's it's known as a season of waiting. Um, Like the faithful of old, we wait for Christmas Day. Um, For us, Christmas Day is a celebration of what happened 2,000 years ago. Um, For them, it was a culmination, uh, a culmination of 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 the promises that God had made, the fulfillment of these promises that God says he will be among his people and that he will redeem his people. Um, But we also wait uh, for the second advent. Uh, The second advent is Christ's return. Because um, though through Christ all of us can be saved, Our souls can be saved and we can be adopted into the family of God. You know, God welcomed us into his family as uh, as a father. That can all happen today. But we all still live sin marred, broken lives in a sin marred, broken world. So so God's work is not done. And so we wait. We wait for Christ's return, the second advent. And this tension of hopeful waiting, it connects us with the, with the faithful of old, right? We know what it was like for them to wait, because we wait. We have something to wait for. We have something to hope for. We have something that we desperately need. And just like them, that thing is Jesus. We are waiting for Jesus, In, uh, in, in preparation to speak with you guys this morning and to sort of get myself um, into a, uh, the right uh, place for Advent. I spent a lot of time with um, uh, reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, Advent letters. Um, and I want to share some of it. There's a couple of Bonhoeffer quotes in this sermon, um, but one that I want to share right now is a, uh, a snippet from a, a letter that he wrote to a friend from a German prison in 1943. So Bonhoeffer is in prison when he writes this. And he says, Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this, that, or the other. Things that are are really of no consequence. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. We wait for it to be opened. Now, that was written from a Nazi prison, so if it comes across as dramatic, you can probably excuse Bonhoeffer there. But it it taps into something really important, and that is that all of us have a dramatic need for these advents, the first advent and the second advent, the first advent that rescues us from our sin and the second advent to come and right our broken world. So... With all that said, welcome to the season of Advent. I want to uh, steal a a page out of Pastor Barry's book here. And let's just take a deep breath, you know? In the nose, sigh it out. Do it. I'm serious. Deep breath. Ah, Feels good. Thanks, Barry. (laughs) Um, As the world speeds up, we, the church, slow down, all right? We take time to reflect. We take time to wait, we hope, we rejoice, and we wonder. And so today, I want to my goal here is I want to open our minds and imaginations to the wonder of the Advent story. You know, this interaction between Mary and Gabriel that Pastor Eric read for us, it is a great starting point, point. and because this is the moment when the author capital A, when the author enters into his own story. Now, before going into the specifics of of that interaction, I want to zoom out and try to look at the story of Jesus' coming with fresh eyes and see if we can reclaim some newness and wonder. Because Newness and wonder are uh, rare commodities for us who are getting a little older in age. Um, but our children seem to be overflowing with them. Um, my, my daughter, Lily, uh, is a great example of this. Um, at her age, you know, she's about to get spoiled with all the Paw Patrols and all the Disney Princess toys. And I want to say to myself and to the other parents, you know, grandparents buying this, this is all unnecessary because she just wants the box and the bubble wrap. Like, it, it, you don't need to spend a lot of money to entertain her. And, and what really gets me, you know, is watching her play with, like, the, little, the, the free balloon that they give you at Kroger's. If you go shopping at Kroger's and you go to the right department, they'll usually give the kids a free balloon, and she will play with this thing for hours. And if you think about it, a balloon is actually a pretty amazing toy, because it floats, and not a lot of things in our life float. It it moves in unpredictable patterns. It squeaks. It drives the dog insane. They don't know what to do with these things. Um, you can pass it. You could play, you know, don't let it touch the ground. You can put it in your shirt and there, you know, you're pregnant. Like, endless fun. And when I watch Lily play with a balloon, it makes me feel a million years old. When did the balloon-loving part of my brain die? Where did the wonder go? Now, some of you might say, hey, Dan, cool it. It's just a balloon. But... Did you guys see that video where the pastor dropped like a thousand balloons on the congregation? All right, now look up. Oh, I don't think anybody looked up. I thought I would get somebody. <laughs> uh, the idea that I would actually do that would be is 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 quite humorous to me. Um, but if I had given you a balloon and you had never seen one before, like if it was brand new, and you would you would be kind of fascinated with it. And there's a a saying out there, and that saying is that familiarity breeds contempt. And what that means is that extensive knowledge of something, it leads to the loss of respect for it. I think this is the reason why Christmas lights and eggnog delight us, is because we only have them for two months. If we had them year-round, we would be sick of them very quickly. And here's my point. A lot of us come to church week after week, and we hear the story of the gospel, which is exactly what you want to hear when you come to church. You hear about Jesus who became a man and who lived the life that you should have lived, and then he dies the death that you deserve in your place to reconcile you to God. That's the story you hear week after week, and you need to hear that, and we need to hear that every single week. But our nature is that if we hear the same thing week after week, it can start to wash over us we can lose the newness and the wonder and what i want all of us to recognize what we need to understand is that to the non-christian world to the non-believing world to the secular to the people of other faiths to that world the christmas story makes no sense it's it's silly it's a fairy tale This is not how a God behaves. You are trying to tell me that the God of the universe, a being of infinite ability, power, and wisdom, exalted, as we see here in Luke, as the Most High, makes himself low, makes himself vulnerable. As vulnerable as a baby human infant born to poor parents In a barn. That this God takes on the weakness of the human condition. All the tiredness, all the hunger, the sorrow, the pain, the loneliness. He takes it all on. And then this God, the Most High, the God of the universe, suffers the humiliation of the cross to be murdered by his own creation. That's the story the rest of the world hears. And it's odd that for something to feel like a fanciful fairy tale for one group, and then for us, kind of mundane, because we've heard it before. And I imagine that if we were in the room, if we were part of the PR team that was in charge of salvation, you know, if God invited us into a room and said, OK, here's the plan for salvation, and he laid that out, what I just said, you know, our, our response might be, hmm, OK, OK. You know, no bad ideas and brainstorming. But let's keep throwing ideas out there, God, um, because maybe we can find something a little more inside the box. You know, maybe something a little less extreme than you becoming a baby and dying. But that's what makes God, God. God does not go the way that people would set out for him. God's ways are beyond all comprehension, and he's writing a story more fantastic than any of us could ever dream of. To quote Bonhoeffer again, he writes that God travels wonderful ways with human beings, but he does not comply with the views and opinions of people. God does not go the way that people want to prescribe for him. Rather, his way is beyond all comprehension, free and self-determined beyond all proof. Or, to quote Paul from uh, 1 Corinthians, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no uh, mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. God's plan for this world is wonderful. It is wonderfully creative. It is wonderfully intentional. It is wonderfully different. It is wonderfully other. It is wonderfully foreign. It's not something we could ever expect. And it humbles the proud. It humbles the wise. It humbles the people who think they have it all figured out. And it draws near the lowly. It draws near the broken It draws near the hurting. It draws near the low. And that right there, that idea, that last point, that's the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly and is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. And what we see in the incarnation is that God marches right in. I love this thought. I'm going to share with you a long quote. This is from Dorothy Sayers, but it it captures a lot that I think is, um, is helpful here. She writes, For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience, from trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. And thought it well worthwhile. So we've heard the Christmas story. You've heard the Christmas story. You know the incarnation. But pretend like you have it. See if you can strip away the years of, of, of hearing it. Pretend like it's new. Look at it like a child. What emotions does it stir within you? Do you get wonder? Do you get gratitude? Do you get amazement? This Advent season, let's... We want it to be about all the things that we love, wreaths and calendars and, and beauty and art and family. But before we can dive into those, before we can fully appreciate those things we have to reclaim a sliver of newness and wonder. Now, speaking of wonder, we're going to move on to the interaction between Mary and the angel Gabriel. Now, as we talk about this, keep in mind that that Mary is probably about 15 which is the typical betrothal age at the time. And, and Jewish betrothal is a little bit like our concept of engagement, but more serious. There was an arrangement between families. Um, it was a legally binding arrangement. It could last up to a year, where the man and the woman, the future groom and the future bride Um, would basically be considered husband and wife in every way except physically. They'd be considered husband and wife in a legal sense, but not in a physical sense, not in an intimate sense. Hence, Mary being a virgin. And this explains Mary's uneasy reaction. And and Mary is the first person in history to look at the Christmas story and say, wait, I've got questions. (laughs) And this... Touches on a topic that I covered when discussing Gideon in Hebrews eleven a couple of weeks back. We have, we need to see Mary as a whole person, right? She's she's heart and head. She's you know intelligent, emotional, spiritual, intuitive. She's not divorced from rationality. So when this plan is presented to her. She naturally raises some questions and has some doubts. And I think sometimes we suffer from historical bias where we think we were just like way more intelligent than anybody in the past because we have iPhones and they didn't. So obviously, without Wikipedia, how could anybody ever live up to our intelligence? And that's, like, that's bias. They had the same IQs that we did. Even back then they knew a pregnancy takes about nine months and they could do the math and say, well, they were married on this date and the baby was born on this date, so they would figure it out. Despite being young, Mary would know that A, virgins don't have babies. B, Joseph and his family are going to be rocked by this. This is going to be a big deal. And this would likely break that legally binding marriage agreement. And see whether Joseph leaves her or not. In that day and in that age, it becomes very hard for a woman who has a baby before being married. She was going to carry a stigma potentially for the rest of her life. So you can imagine that this encounter comes as quite a shock. On one hand, you have an honest-to-God angel, and, it, and he's telling her, you're going to be blessed with a son, a son of the Most High, a, a king whose kingdom will never end. And that sounds incredible and fantastic. But on the other hand, it's impossible. And it's dangerous. And it triggers Mary's doubt. Now, I want to contrast this foretelling, the foretelling of Jesus, with another foretelling, the foretelling of John the Baptist, which is right up above in Luke. It's Luke uh, 8 through 25. Um, In this story, the same angel, Gabriel, tells Zechariah that his aged wife, who is barren, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. Now, this isn't an immaculate conception situation, but it's still a miracle. Um, And like Mary, Zechariah... He has questions and doubts. But instead of a gentle explanation, Gabriel strikes Zachariah mute. Now, why did this happen? Why was Zachariah dealt harshly in his doubt, but Mary gently in her doubt? Did Gabriel just like wake up on the wrong side of the cloud the day he went and talked to Zach? It's like, obviously not. Obviously there's more going on here. And the reason for the difference is that while doubt is not necessarily a bad thing, there are absolutely bad ways to doubt. While doubt is not necessarily a bad thing, there are wrong ways. There are bad ways to doubt. There's the doubt of an open mind versus the doubt of a closed mind. So let's look at these, these differences. There's a, su- there's a very subtle difference. It's, it's very similar, but, but if you, when you look at it, you'll see it. There's a subtle difference in, in the questions that Mary and Zechariah ask in their response to this foretelling, to their foretellings. So when told of his miracle, Zechariah responded, How shall I know this? How shall I know this? Tell me, God, prove it to me. This sounds too good to be true. Prove it. This asking for a sign, it implies a lack of faith and trust. And this is, this is doubting with a closed mind. And Gabriel, believe it or not, is good enough to give him a sign. <laughs> it's just not the sign he would have wanted. Now, when told of her miracle... Mary asks, how will this be? Can you guys kind of tell the difference there? It went from how shall I know this to how will this be? It's it's a small difference, but it's important because her response implies that because the Lord has said it, because the Lord wills it, it will happen. And she is simply and faithfully asking for understanding. That's doubting with an open mind. Realizing that God is good and that what God does is good and that what God says will happen will happen, but asking questions and taking those questions to the Lord as doubt with an open mind. And it's like, I read this and I think, God, give us the faith of this 15-year-old girl. She shows us how to doubt with the open mind and she brings her doubts to God and then she surrenders in faith to his will. And, and understand, make no mistake, she is being asked to surrender. Um, naming your child is a sacred right of parents. For the parents in the room or you know anybody who's playing and having a child, can you imagine you know, letting someone else have that right? Could you imagine if your boss was like, oh, you're pregnant, great here 's what you have to name your child, like get lost, or you know your, your mayor or even the church, anybody There's, you, know, you take that to any level, you say, no, that 's my right. I name my child, right? I carry this thing, I mean speaking as a woman, you know I carry this thing or or a man with a balloon in his shirt. Um, <laughs> full circle there. Um, I carry this thing. I, We're birthing this thing. I'm naming this thing. This is my child. But God lets her know this is no ordinary child, and God asks her to lay down that sacred rite. Now, I think through this angel, God is approaching Mary, and he's basically saying, Mary, I've got great news for you. Mary, I've got great news for you, but I'm going to need you to lay down your life. I'm going to need you to put aside whatever security you had, thought you had thought you had built up for yourself. I'm going to need you to drop whatever ideas or visions of parenting you thought you had. Let go of the story that you're writing for yourself. Mary, I need you to surrender all of it. All of it. To follow me. And I will write you in to the greatest story ever told. A story that mothers will tell their children 2,000 years from now. A story that will bring hope to the hopeless, joy to the joyless, and salvation to the lost. And even though you don't know it yet, a story that will not only change your life, but will save your soul. And despite her doubts, she responds in verse 38, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy will. God, give us the faith of this 15-year-old. If her faith doesn't strike you with wonder, then like you and I are made of different stuff. My prayer for myself is that should the Lord ever ask me to travel similar roads, That my 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 response would be like Mary's to some small degree. As we conclude today's uh, sermon, you know the goal was just I just want us to open our imaginations, open your imaginations, refresh some of that sense of wonder. Let's, let's, let's regain some of that wonder heading into the Advent season. There are so many things. There are so many things, good things, that will compete for your attention over the next few weeks. And I don't want us to lose the newness and the wonder of the Christmas story. Um, one final Bonhoeffer quote that I want to share. Um, this was from a letter that he wrote from prison. Um, a prison, by the way, that he never left. Well, I shouldn't say that. He was transferred from the prison to a concentration camp where then he was killed. Um, he wrote this letter to his fiance, a fiance he never married because he never regained his freedom. But he wrote this to his fiance, and he said from prison, I think we're going to have an exceptionally good Christmas. The very fact that outward circumstance precludes our making provision for it will show whether or not we can be content with what is truly essential. I used to be very fond of thinking up and buying presents, but now that we have nothing to give, the gift God gave us in the birth of Christ will seem all the more glorious. The poorer our conditions, the more clearly we perceive that our hearts should be Christ's home on earth. As we move into our time of communion, if if this stuff doesn't make any sense to you, if if it's all that fanciful fairy tale, um, then my encouragement to you, as opposed to coming up and taking communion, is to wrestle with the impossible claims of the Christmas story. God becoming a man. It's crazy. God born to a virgin. It sounds impossible. But... If this child was to, the do, was to do the extraordinary, then it would only make sense that he would have an extraordinary entrance into the world. Now, for, for those of us who are trying to make um, our hearts Christ home on earth, maybe we're trying and we're failing, but we're trying, you're invited to come up, take a piece of the bread, which represents Christ's body broken for you, And dip it in the wine, which represents Christ's blood spilt for you. And let yourself wrestle with the tension of waiting. And let's reflect on the wonder of Jesus' birth, of Jesus' life, and of Jesus' death, on Jesus' work on the cross to save you. Will you pray with me? God, I pray in some small way that you give us, you know, childlike minds, that you help strip away the the dullness that experience can bring and give us the new eyes to experience this Christmas season, the season of Advent, in a new way. Lord, help us um, wait um, longingly uh, for Christmas Day um, and connect to the the faithful who waited for you, who waited for you to come and reconcile um, and set uh, our souls right. And Lord, help us to wait well, for, um, for you to return and come and set our world right. God, thank you for an example like Mary. Um, Lord, may her uh, faith continue to inspire us. We love you. Amen.